Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. Claremont Boulevard is an upscale cul-de-sac located about 20 minutes down from my non-upscale street. The families who occupy the houses are the kind that own fancy SUVs and send their kids to camp for the summer. All the dads play golf and the moms get together for brunch at some fancy, overpriced downtown restaurant and then come back home and spend the rest of their afternoons tanning in their backyards while their lawn keepers trim the hedges to look like swans. It's not a place where I would usually be if it weren't for the fact that I babysit for one of these families, the Berkeleys. My friend Myra set me up with this job. She teaches gymnastics to children and knows a bunch of families who are in need of babysitters and asked me to take the job so that she would be able to go to Disneyland with her new boyfriend. I agreed, seeing as though I had just quit my job and was in desperate need of money in order to pay for my upcoming semester at university. The Berkeleys had offered me $17 an hour to babysit their eight-year-old twins, Rachel and Ryan. Apparently, their summer camp had been canceled last minute due to some accident with some of the camp leaders or something like that. The job is pretty simple. I leave my house at 8.10 a.m. and I'm at the Berkeley's by 8.30. When I get there, Mr. Berkeley leaves for work while Mrs. Berkeley gets ready to leave for her yoga class. Kids are already up at this time eating breakfast. And at 8.55, Mrs. Berkeley leaves as well. I'm alone with the kids until around 1.30 p.m., but I don't actually leave the house until around 3 p.m because Mrs. Berkeley tells me that she really needs a break after her stressful errands. I'm not complaining, though. I'm making a decent amount of money for doing the bare minimum. I don't really even have to do much else besides making the kids' lunches and washing a few dishes. We spend the majority of the time watching movies or playing video games. Sometimes they beg me to get in the pool with them, which, of course, I do. I actually do like this job, and I'm getting paid a lot more than I was at my old job, where I was yelled at by old people all day long. So this is definitely a step up. Besides, it's a very nice neighborhood, where nothing bad ever really happens. Until today, that is. Today, at around 10 a.m., I was sitting outside on one of the lawn chairs by the pool, painting my toenails while Ryan and Rachel splashed around in the water. I noticed it was starting to get a bit cloudy. I could barely see what I was doing, so I took off my sunglasses, only to realize that it was actually pretty dark outside. I glanced up at the sky to see some dark clouds rolling in, as the summer breeze turned into a chilling wind. Hey guys, it looks like there's a storm coming. We should head inside for a bit, I called to the kids. They looked up at the sky as well, and then swam over to the steps and climbed out of the pool. I carefully stuck my feet back into my sandals and tried to quickly walk back inside without messing up the white polish. 
I closed the door behind me as Rachel and Ryan shivered, their blonde curls sticking to their faces. I grabbed their towels from the table near the door and wrapped each of them up, sending them away to take a warm shower as I made sure the doors and windows were closed. While I waited for the kids to get dressed, I looked out the sliding glass door as it slowly got darker and darker outside. It looked as if the sun was setting, but without any of the pretty colors, and more like if the sun was moving further and further away. The sound of the doorbell echoed through the house, making me jump. I stepped away from the door and slid the curtain back into place as I walked down the hallway and into the living room. I opened up the door to see Mrs. Kleppen, standing on the front porch in her running clothes. Yes? I asked. I came to check on the children, she said in her very fake concerned tone. They're in the shower, I replied. Mrs. Kleppen stood up on her tiptoes and peered over my shoulders into the house. Humph. She blinked rapidly at me, which was Mrs. Kleppen's language for, I don't like poor people in my neighborhood. Anything else? I asked. It isn't safe in these conditions, and there appears to be a storm rolling in, she said. Well, if it isn't safe, then why would I drive? She took a deep breath, staring at me the entire time. Fine, she whispered. I'm going to call Celia. I don't think she would feel comfortable with someone like you being in charge of her children during this dangerous weather. Someone like me? I repeated. Oh, don't get offended. You know what I mean. She waved her hand towards me as if she was shooing away a fly. No, actually, I have no idea what you mean, I said. You just... Uh, you come from a different family. You, you wouldn't understand, she said. Okay, look, I have to go babysit these kids, and I don't think Celia would be very happy about you distracting me from my job. Have a nice day, Mrs. Kleppen. I shut the door in her face as she started to say something else. I walked over to check on the kids and found them in the TV room, trying to get the TV to work. I don't think that's going to work, guys. I think the storm might be messing with it. Ryan turned the TV off. Well then, what are we supposed to do? He asked. Well, we could play other games. Do you guys want to play Uno? I asked. I guess, Rachel mumbled. Well, we don't have to. You can choose, I said, sitting down next to her. I wanted to swim more, she said. Maybe we can go back after the storm, I suggested. Although, from the looks of it, that didn't appear to be any time soon. It was still getting darker outside, more so by the second. In fact, there seemed to be some sort of fog out there or something. I couldn't even see the tree that was a few feet out from the window anymore. I stood up and peered outside, squinting, in order to see anything at all. The houses were almost completely dark, and I couldn't really make out anything except very dimly lit windows from one of the houses across the street. I could see some sort of movement a few feet away, and as it got closer, I could see that it was Mrs. Kleppen. I rolled my eyes. How crazy was this woman that she was outside in this storm, just so that she could somehow get me to leave? What are you looking at? Ryan asked. I turned around. Miss Kleppen is out there just walking around, I said. Well, maybe she's lost, Rachel said. 
Yeah, maybe, I replied. I looked out the window again, but I saw nothing at all, only darkness. Hey, Ryan, why don't you turn on some lights? I'm going to call your mom and let her know about the storm, I said. I grabbed my cell phone and dialed Mrs. Berkeley. She picked up on the third ring. Hey, Rosa, how's it going? She asked. Um, pretty well, but there's some kind of storm coming in right now. I don't know how far away you are or if you can see it, but it's completely dark out here right now. I just wanted to let you know that it's probably not safe to drive over here until this clears up. I said as I watched Ryan and Rachel grab some coloring books and crayons from a shelf. All right, uh, thanks for letting me know. Just keep the kids inside and give me a call when it clears up. I'll call my husband, she replied. We hung up and I spent the next few minutes coloring with the twins. About five minutes into it, the doorbell rang again. Stay right here. I'm going to go see who it is, I replied. I walked out into the living room and peered out the window, but I couldn't see anything, not even the plants that sat out on the front porch. Suddenly, Mrs. Kleppen's face popped up, pressed against the window as she banged on the glass. Damn, I snapped, jumping back, my heart pounding as she continued to bang on the glass. Yoo-hoo, she called. I rolled my eyes and pulled the curtain back again. Yes, I asked. She smiled at me, which I had never seen her do before. I was just coming to check in on you, she said, still smiling. We're fine, I replied. She kept grinning. What was with this woman? Are you okay? I asked. Oh yes, I'm terrific. It's lovely out here, isn't it? She said. I looked around at the darkness that surrounded her. Uh, yeah, that's one way to look at it. I replied. You should come out here and bring the children, she grinned. Oh, uh, no, no, I don't think so. Mrs. Berkeley wouldn't like that, I replied. Oh, come on. It's lovely outside right now. Come out here and bring the children with you, she said. I'm going to go check on the kids, I said. I closed the curtain and walked back to the TV room, but I could hear Mrs. Kleppen knocking on the window faintly. Who was it? Ryan asked. Mrs. Kleppen. Uh, she was being weird, I said. She's always weird. Mom says she's a nosy, Rachel said. Yeah, <laughs> your mom is right, I replied. We managed to entertain ourselves for the next hour or so, until Ryan and Rachel got hungry. We made our way to the kitchen turning on lights as we went, so that we could see our way around the house. I made them some sandwiches as we sat around the kitchen table as they ate. When they were done, I washed the dishes and put them all away, and then we made our way back to the TV room. When we passed the living room, the doorbell rang again. Stay here, I said as I walked over and once again peered out the window. It was still pitch black outside and I wasn't able to see anything. Rosa, it's me. Can you please open the door? Mrs. Berkeley said. I reached for the doorknob, but then I stopped. What happened to your keys? I asked. What? She replied. Your keys. You don't have them? I asked. 
Oh, no. I forgot them when I left, she replied. Please, open the door right away. I need to see the children. If you don't have the keys, how did you get here? I asked. There was something off about this whole thing, and while it was probably this fog that was making me paranoid, it was better to be safe than sorry. Besides, I hadn't even seen Mrs. Berkeley at all. I had only heard her knocking and her voice. And even though I couldn't see outside, I would have at least heard her car driving up into the garage, where she always parked. So what was she doing knocking on the front door? What do you mean, how did I get here? She asked. If you don't have your keys, how did you drive your car? I asked. That doesn't matter. Let me in. I need to see the children. She snapped, rattling the doorknob. I didn't reply and I stepped back from the door. Let me in, Rosa! She shouted. I looked over at the kids and motioned for them to be quiet and to go back into the TV room. They nodded and hurried down the hall. I'm sorry. I can't let you in. I'm not even sure it's you, I said. A banging sound on the window made me jump. I could see that someone was pressed up against the other side, but I wasn't able to make out any details without pulling the curtain aside. I was right. It wasn't Mrs. Berkeley. It was Mrs. Kleppen again. Listen, you little dick. Let me into this house right now, or I swear to God himself that I will kill you when you come out. Do you hear me? I'll kill you she snarled. She even sounded like Mrs. Berkeley. What was going on? I backed away from the window, letting the curtain fall back into place. I ran back to the TV room. I had no idea what was going on out there, but something was not right. Mrs. Kleppen was a dick for sure, but not that much of a dick. I had never seen her like that. It was almost as if it wasn't even her that was in control of herself. I called the police, who told me they would try to send someone down here. I warned them about the fog outside, and they told me that an officer was on the way already. I stopped looking out the window whenever the doorbell rang, even though it didn't stop for about 20 straight minutes. But the police never showed up. I could tell the kids were scared, even though they weren't acting like it bothered them. We sat in silence, staring at the coloring books in front of us. Suddenly there was a knock on the window. The kids stared at me, and then over at the window. That particular window in the TV room was located towards the back of the house, in the backyard, which meant that whoever was knocking on the window had climbed over the side gate and into the backyard. Kids, it's Dad. Open the door. I looked over at Ryan and Rachel, who looked as confused as I felt, I knew that Mr. Berkeley worked about an hour away from here, and there was no way that he would be back home before his usual time. I grabbed my phone and sent Mrs. Berkeley a text, asking her if she or her husband were on the way. She replied rather quickly, telling me that she was staying put until the fog cleared out and that her husband was in a business meeting. So then who was outside? Rosa, please bring the children out here the person outside the window said. It sounded like Mr. Berkeley, but again, I was getting a weird feeling about this. I put a finger over my lips 
and we slowly got up and made our way out of the room. Rosa, I know you're in there. Bring the kids out, the voice shouted. We kept going down the hall until we got to Mr. Berkeley's office, where I shut the door. What's going on? Rachel whispered. I don't know, but that's not your dad out there, I replied. Then who is it? And why does it sound like him? Ryan asked. I shrugged. Stay here. I walked out into the hallway and peered into the TV room. Whoever was outside the window was still knocking, but they weren't saying anything. I could hear a car starting outside somewhere and heard it racing down the street. Suddenly it was silent again, and I made my way down to the office. I opened the door and looked around the room. Where's Ryan? I asked Rachel, who was sitting on the couch. He went to the bathroom, she said. I looked down the hallway to the bathroom, but the door was wide open, and there was no one in there. The sound of a door slamming shut from the other end of the hall made me look over just in time to see it close as Ryan ran out. I looked back at Rachel. Come here. You're going to grab onto my arm and you're not going to let go, okay? I said. She nodded, wide-eyed, as she grabbed my arm and we made our way to the kitchen at the end of the hall. I pulled the door open, letting in a harsh cold wind. I flicked on the switch that turned on the lights in the backyard, but they were nothing but small dots in the distance. Crap, I mumbled. Where's Ryan? Rachel asked. I don't know, I replied. Rosa, I heard him call. Ryan, where are you? I asked. I don't know, I can't see, he shouted back. His voice seemed to be coming from all directions, all at once. Just follow my voice, okay? Come on, I can hear you. I called out into the darkness. I kept talking out into the darkness until Ryan finally emerged right in front of me. I grabbed him and dragged him inside, locking the door behind him, right as Joel Sanders from down the street ran right into the door. God dang it, I breathed as I jumped in. It's Joel, Rachel said as I watched him pressed up against the small glass window in the door, grinning up at me. Hi, Rosa, Joel said. Hi. I watched as he shifted his eyes over to Rachel. I grabbed her and pulled her behind me. Can Rachel come out to play? He asked. Uh, not right now, I replied. Come on, let her out, he said, still grinning. Maybe later, Joel. You should go home. It's not safe out. Joel banged on the glass with his head in the palms of his hands. Let her out, he screamed. I pushed Rachel back, and we all ran back into the office. We sat there as different neighbors knocked on windows and doors around the house, shouting. After what felt like years, everything got quiet. Look, Ryan pointed to the window. I turned to see that it was clearing up outside. I walked over and slowly pulled the curtain away. The sun was back, and there was no one outside. I took the kids with me, and we all walked over to the living room as I opened the front door and looked out into the street. I gasped and pushed the kids back inside, shutting the door once again. What was it? Rachel asked. Um, 
Nothing, I replied. We waited inside the house in silence for a while, until finally the front door opened and Mr. and Mrs. Berkeley came inside, rushing towards their kids and hugging them. What happened out there? I asked. Mrs. Berkeley exchanged a look with her husband, but didn't answer me. Stay here, she said. I'll be right back to pay you. They took their kids with them as they left me in the living room. Curious about what I had gotten a glimpse of before, I walked out the front door and onto the driveway. There were bodies everywhere. On the street. On the front lawn. Everywhere I looked, there was a dead body. I kept walking down the driveway and onto the sidewalk, keeping a distance between me and the bodies. As I walked around my car, I jumped when I almost tripped over a body right behind it. I averted my eyes quickly, but the image was already burned into my brain. The body didn't have a face. I took a deep breath and made myself look again, and I realized that I had no idea who it was, and I knew almost everyone in the neighborhood. I forced myself to look at a few others. None of the bodies had a face. I was able to recognize one, however. The tracksuit and shiny blonde ponytail were unforgettable. Mrs. Kleppen was on the Berkeley's front yard, dead. As I looked down the street, I recognized something else. There was a car in the middle of the road. The front and back of the cars were completely destroyed and dented inwards. I walked over to the driver's side and looked in to see a body there and in the passenger seat. Their faces were missing, but I knew for a fact that I recognized the car. I turned around and ran back into the Berkeley's house calling for Rachel and Ryan. No response. I ran out into the backyard and tripped over the body of two boys with missing faces. Rachel! I shouted. Silence. Rachel! I screamed. But again, there was nothing. I ran around the house and back to the front yard, where I got into my car and backed out the driveway, wincing as I went over the body that was back there. As I pulled out into the street, I looked into the rearview mirror and almost screamed. In my back seat, there was a body of a little girl with a missing face. When news of his arrest arrived, I was the least surprised. My mother outright denied the statement, simply refused even the suggestion that my father could commit such a heinous crime as the one detailed by the reporting officer. My brother, two years younger and more inclined to my way of thinking, regarded the news as something to have been expected. My very young, vacant-minded sister failed to grasp the severity of the crimes and simply took the announcement as something generally bad, the circumstances from which my father would assuredly free himself, as his made-up heroes had done during their father-daughter story time. He was being held without bail at the jailhouse about a 20-minute drive from our home, and at the demand of our mother, we all loaded up into the family SUV and drove to meet our intern dad. He sat alone in a spacious cell, presumably used to house multiple criminals in one room, 
though our town wasn't known for criminality, or anything really, and looked very upset. His dark blue jeans had various cuts in the fabric, as if torn by fingernails, something my mother pretended not to notice. His black sweater had at some point been splattered by something, and since I didn't remember him leaving the home in the morning with any stains, I assumed they were obtained during his alleged criminal act. His skin, which had been almost orange from the unyielding summer sun, was now unbelievably pale, as if he had been dipped in white paint and left to dry somewhere cold and lightless. Black hair previously combed back now sat in a downward felled mess, covering his forehead and his right eye. He didn't seem to mind the obstruction of vision. The officer who had led us to his cell said we had ten minutes to speak with our father, and that due to the nature of my father's crime, he would have to remain in the corridor to supervise. We don't have a family lawyer. We never needed one, and the suggestion of an attorney's presence was either unheard or ignored by my distraught mother. My sister, finally realizing the realness of the situation, ran to my father and hugged him. He didn't seem to notice her embrace, nor our gathering in the room. He just stared at the floor, eyes set deep in his face, encircled by darkness born of tiredness or fright, while his mouth hung open and breathless. That's what unnerved me the most. In the large, quiet room where in any other city several prisoners would be held, but in this one only our father resided. You could hear even the smallest sound. I heard my mother's unstable, ragged breathing, my brother's deep, self-calming respiration, and my sister's heavy gulps of air between her sobs. My own breathing was as steady as I could keep it, but no exhalations could be heard from my father. He just sat there, as motionless as a cadaver, staring into oblivion or gazing upon some remembered horror. When it became obvious that my father would not respond to our questions, of which there were many, even from myself and my brother, we left him alone and returned to the officer, who escorted us upstairs and into the lobby of the station. In another city, the building would have seemed underfunded, the officers ill-equipped to handle even a slow day's worth of crime. But in our town, the police openly expressed themselves to be bored out of their minds, some even jokingly wished for an uptick in crime, but I highly doubt the charges laid against my father were what those sentinels of peace had in mind. They laid out the full details, and due to my father's lack of cooperation, hadn't felt the need to spare us the grislier aspects. They were furious with him, absolutely disgusted by what had transpired, and I realized that the suggestion of lawyering up was merely an admonishment of formality. They wanted my father locked up, or perhaps even dead. When all had been said, my mother had been given time to process what she had been told. We drove home in silence. During the ride, my sister stared out the window and pointed at random objects, mouthing imperceptible things to herself. Her child's mind wouldn't be able to fathom what she had overheard during our briefing at the station. My brother stared down at his hands, which rested palms down on his thighs, his face hard, unmoving. 
he was old enough to comprehend the things suggested, implied, and fully revealed. I could not see my mother's face, but I'm sure it was of a similar visage to my brother's, though probably masked to some degree by what she thought was a comforting, everything-will-be-all-right smile. My face was blank. I didn't need to come to terms with anything and I had no difficulty in believing that my father could commit the atrocities of which he has been accused. I was aware of my father's predilection for violence. Six days ago, a girl had gone missing. Her name was Kelly, and she was 13 years old. We're the same age. The local news reported that she had wandered off from her short walk to school with friends after something in the woods caught her attention. The two girls with whom she had been walking did not follow her, even called out to her to return to the sidewalk, but she ignored them. They ran to school and told the staff who ran into the woods, and when they could not find her, called the police, who dispatched several officers to assist in the search. After an hour with no success, the town was alerted to the situation, and a full search party convened and dispersed throughout the woods and outlying neighborhoods. Today, after yet another unsuccessful morning search, a man walked into the police station holding a large bag. The man knelt in the lobby of the station cradling the bag, eyes fixated on nothing in particular, but aimed at the general direction of the officers. They approached the man, asked what he held, and when he did not respond, they opened it. Their reactions were what you'd expect them to be. After the immediate shock wore off, they issued somber pants on the back of my father, who still had not spoken. They initially thought that in some gravely fortuitous lone man's search, he had recovered the body of the missing girl. It was only when an officer noticed my father's hands and torn jeans that the atmosphere of the room dramatically shifted. Guns were raised and leveled at my father. Orders were barked aloud and into the radios, and the gloom-befallen room was thrown into chaos. My father had, a tale reconstructed to the best accuracy possible given the evidence, abducted the girl during her sojourn into the woods, bisected her at the hips, hid in the lower half, and returned the upper portion to the station. The lower half, which was found in the rarely used freezer we kept in our basement, had been preserved for a hideous purpose. Apparently, the girl had been slain on the last day of her abduction, and my father had spent the previous few days behaving as if he had not been holding her captive somewhere. Where? We never found out. Why? He kept her for so long before committing his secondary crime? We don't know. Some people believe the whole thing was some prolonged episode of insanity, making the largely uneducated assumption that years of heavy drinking had warped his mind, while others think it was the first of what would have been many murderous indulgences, born of some genetic predisposition for savagery. My brother took offense at that, despite not having any knowledge to disprove the assertion. He was only eleven, and the seed of evil could very well be within him. I think that upset him more than the actual murder. The chance that he could one day carry out a similar act of diabolism. My birthday is in two days, 
Remember how I said I could very well believe my father had done such terrible things? Last year on my birthday, my father was late to my birthday party. He and my mother argued, and in my desire to have a birthday not ruined by fighting, I tried to break up the argument. My obviously drunk father pushed me and I fell down our stairs, fracturing my spine. I was rendered permanently handicapped. My mother, hoping to preserve the family unit, reported the incident as an accident, that I had fallen while excitedly running up the stairs to retrieve a present. I didn't deny the story, only because I wanted to believe it was just an accident, that he hadn't truly meant to push me with such force. Whether my father's recent actions were born of immense guilt or the sick joke of a twisted mind, I can't say. Because I don't know. He won't speak to anyone. And from what I've heard during my mother's phone calls with authorities, he won't be allowed back into civilization for quite some time. If ever. We plan on moving soon. I don't know if it'll be another small town but I don't think it'll matter anymore. Even the smallest, most remote place can have crimes as awful as those in any big city. But what keeps me up at night, what sends a chill through my inoperative spine, is the note that was attached to one of the poor girl's legs. It read, Melissa, I am sorry for what happened last year. Please forgive me. I got you some new legs. Just your size. I know they're not exactly the same, hers are a bit less toned, but it was the best I could do. I mean, she just stumbled into the woods while I was on my walk. I didn't even call out to her or anything. I hadn't thought of what to get you for your birthday that could make up for what I did last year. And those legs. Those legs, I just knew they'd be perfect for you. Please, Melissa. Understand? From Dad. I killed Jacqueline. I killed my girlfriend. Pai I killed her because she was going to kill you. All of you. The world was going to end if Jacqueline went out that door. I'm going to burn my house down, with myself inside. I'm drinking all the vodka I can handle, then covering this place in gasoline. But first I'm going to finish this note, so I can tell you what happened. You won't believe me. I hope you don't. Because if you believe me, then that means there's evidence. If there's evidence, that means some of it survived. And that means you're screwed. My name is Kevin Gillard. I'm an entrepreneur. You know what? Screw it. I don't have time to tell you extraneous details. I just hiked the entire Appalachian Trail, started in Georgia, and ended up here. Fifty miles from the end of the trail, here in Maine, I found the chamber. You can walk for a week without a sign of human habitation. That's why it was so strange. While the earth ahead of me rose into Mount Katahdin, that I saw a brick. Covered in a light layer of moss, it lay half-hidden under a tree root. Curiosity beckoned me to it. After months in the wild, seeing only the occasional town, straight lines hold a magnetic rarity. Also, there was the confusing question of why a brick would be in an isolated stretch of forest, 
no buildings stood anywhere nearby. I dislodged the brick from the tree root and dusted off the surface. It was gray, carved out of the same stone composing the boulders scattered nearby. An obscure, vaguely sinister carving twisted across one side of the brick. Sometimes you look back on a thought from your past, and it's like it wasn't even you that had it. How could I have ever, ever thought that? That's not me. No. In retrospect, your past self becomes delusional, even schizophrenic. I'm experiencing that now. My fascination with the brick was idiotic. I was 50 miles from finishing the most iconic hiking trail in America, and I decided to hunt for the source of a damn block? Not only was it an asinine misordering of priorities, but there were warning signs everywhere. The occult symbol carved into the stone. The goosebumps on my arm. The fact that a brick shouldn't be in the middle of the desolate wilderness. I ignored all these things and walked away from the trail. It would prove to be the worst decision I've ever made in my life which is about to end after 28 short years. The trees grew much heavier away from the trail, stifling the sky with a thick canopy of needles. I spent an hour or two stumbling around, looking for anything interesting, before I realized I was lost. However, I'm an experienced outdoorsman. It didn't take long to ascertain the direction of the trail with my compass and begin to ascend the rocky ground. A relief that I didn't know I needed washed through me then. The subtle weirdness I'd felt in the forest seemed to melt away as the slope tilted into the sky. I perched on a ridge and spied the trail only a few hundred feet away, but in the other direction, I saw something else. A doorway. An inky rectangle in the wall of a ravine, impossible to spot from anywhere except my position. The hairs on my neck raised themselves, a warning from my subconscious mind. I deliberated with myself on top of that ridge. You're almost done. Two more days until you finish. Don't get distracted. Exploration is the reason why you like the outdoors. You'll always wonder what was in there if you don't peek right now. The human brain is a strange entity, engaged in an endless struggle with itself alone. It's brilliantly innovative yet full of self-deception and faulty processes. Etched with both the innate drive to survive and a sick attraction to danger, every mind is a whirring contradiction. Eventually, my whirring contradiction made the choice to explore the door. As I clambered down over rocks, I noticed the breeze of an early autumn wafting through the ravine. I had entered the trail in March, counting on the southern air of Georgia to keep me warm. Now September had crept over Maine, and at the edges of the days, the weather began to chill. My goosebumps intensified when I finally stood in front of the door. A stone hallway extended far under the rocks, dry air swirling slowly out of the darkness, as if the mountain itself was exhaling. As I gazed into the murk, I felt that consistent gnawing fear grow stronger. This is a bad idea. I remember thinking several times. I grabbed my flashlight from my pack and walked into the passage. It was narrow, but high, and seemed to stretch on forever. After five minutes or so, 
I saw a single brick lying on the floor, identical to the one I'd found in the woods. The beam of my light fell on a familiar symbol. I ignored the brick and kept going. The deeper I wandered into the mountains, the more bricks appeared. You must think I'm an idiot, right? I know I was acting like one. Believe me, I know. Regret courses through me every second when I smell the air in my house, when I see the pores on my hands, when I glance backwards at Jacqueline's body. I'm just going to stop criticizing myself and write what happened. I don't know how much time I have. My fingers are shaking, and I feel things shifting within me. Uh, okay, back to it. Eventually, bricks covered the rough stone walls and the passage began to widen. When a sliver of the setting sun glinted far ahead, I thought I'd made it to an exit. It wasn't an exit. The hallway spilled into a vast circular chamber, a dome of epic proportions. An orange window of burning evening sky was visible in the ceiling, over a hundred feet above me, and in the chamber were stone structures. A dais lay in the middle of the room, where the beam of fading sunlight held dust motes aloft. Pillars stood sentinel on the edges, strange etchings in their blocks, and on the inside of the dome, carved into the arches that rose to the window above me, was an abomination. On first glance there seemed to be many individual statues, entwined with each other across the ceiling in a mad dance but a closer look revealed that the carving was all one thing, an intricate mass of biological chaos, of organic tendrils and growths. I can't describe it accurately. The stone looked alive, like it was moving ever so slightly in the edges of my vision. I know it wasn't, but let me put it this way. Nobody could stand encircled by that horrific carving and feel okay. It did weird things to the mind. Strange patterns hijacked my senses. I was preparing to leave in fear and haste when I saw the body. Well, less of a body than a crumpled mass, ancient and shriveled. It rested behind the far side of the dais, kneeling, as if in prayer. I could feel my limbs shaking, but I had to see it. Maybe it was a prop. Maybe this was some kind of elaborate movie set. It wasn't. When I nudged the body with my foot, it slumped sideways with a dry thud. Gray flakes rose and settled from the corpse. That's when I noticed the box. It was black, metal, simple. Not much larger than the bricks. The body had knelt before it, skeletal fingers entwined in worship to it. Once again, I made a choice that was rational, in the abstract, and foolish, in context. I grabbed the box and stuffed it in my pack. Now I'd have proof that this strange chamber existed and maybe I could figure out more when I returned home. I could tell the authorities about the ancient body and accompany archaeologists as they explored my discovery. I turned to my back on the body and stepped into the tunnel. I expected unease and fear to dissipate. The mystery was over, the suspense gone. But, as I walked, a sickening pressure of dread pressed against my back, emanating from the chamber. It felt like something was watching me from that room, following me, latching on to me, 
I swear to God, there were whispers behind me. Never words, but sounds. Or maybe they were in my head. I started sprinting. I felt like a fool while doing it, but when I finally escaped, panting in the cool night air, it felt like I'd clawed through a coffin, an exit from an underground chamber that reeked of death. I walked far, far away from that dark doorway. I made my way back to the trail and walked five miles up the mountain, bathed in the silver light of an enormous moon, before I pitched my tent and fell asleep. I dreamt of gray dust and muted sobs. Over the next few days, I calmed down considerably. I tried to open the box, but the lid refused to budge. I couldn't tell if anything was inside it, and I figured I'd just find out when I returned home. The breathtaking mountain seemed to pass in a blur. Before I knew it, I was meeting Jacqueline at the pickup location. Damn, 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 Jacqueline's body just shifted. I thought she might be alive, but she's dead. As dead as the skeletal corpse in the chamber. But the thing inside her is not dead, and it just coiled. I heard friction against the carpet and turned to see her body curling and twitching. Hell. I have to finish this. Fast. So I told Jacqueline about the chamber and showed her the box during the five-hour drive back to our place. She blamed me for not snapping photos of that demented ceiling. I couldn't explain what the carving had done to my mind, how it had demanded my eyes and twisted my senses. We talked, caught up on everything. She'd visited me at various points along the trail, including a few weeks ago. So the biggest piece of new conversational material sat unopened in the trunk. What should we do if there's something really valuable in the box? Should we call someone and tell them about the body in the chamber, or just keep it to ourselves? She asked me. Let's just see what's in it first, then we'll talk about whether to call anyone. That body. The body was like a century old, so I think he can wait there a little longer for the authorities. I joked. I was in high spirits, enough to be laughing about the unsettling things I'd seen. A night in my own bed with the love of my life lay in front of me. Jacqueline's next words made me feel like a shadow of the unknown had followed me out of the mountains. Are you sure we should open it at all? When we arrived home, I decided the chamber, the body, and their mysterious metal box had taken up too much of my time. I would open the damn thing then and there. Jacqueline, having driven a car for many hours in a row, went upstairs to shower. I went into the garage with the box and a sense of purpose. Out came a hammer and a screwdriver. It only took about ten minutes to wrench the lid off the box. As you've read, you've probably become just as curious as I was. Maybe even more so. Given that you know how this story ends. Want to know what was inside that box? A piece of paper. There was a slip of century-old yellow paper with a few lines of ink. It fell out with a light sprinkling of grey dust. I could tell as soon as it fluttered to the workbench that it was nothing of value. Nothing that merited all the suspense. Guess what was written on it? A poem. A damn poem. Taking this thing from a surreal tomb, carrying it dozens of miles across the mountains, discussing it for five hours on the ride back home, for a poem, and some dust. 
my disappointment fell away, and dread bubbled to the surface when I read it. The hairs on my arms raised, and I felt as if something from a great distance had suddenly come much closer. I didn't understand it at the time, but looking at it now, I think I get it. From the cold and distant gloom, in muted gurgles of the mind, he calls, he calls, a perfect doom, for worms so weak and blind. We with unknown means create his just and cruel commands. We fall, we fall in holy hate. Our tubes become his hands. I remember feeling a tight knot in my stomach, the same way I'd felt looking at the carving, as if I saw a crack in the veil of reality, and there was something foul behind it. Then exhaustion settled over my anxiety like drifting ashes. I walked upstairs in a trance and collapsed into bed. "'What's wrong, babe?' said Jacqueline. "'Was there anything in the box?' "'Nothing,' I told her, to answer both her questions, and then I was out. This time in my dream, the gray powder filled skies across the world, and there was no place without muffled cries. Jacqueline just sat up, moved herself into a kneeling position, hands out front and head bowed, like she's praying. Her skin, what's left of it, is gray. She's dead. I know she's dead. Ah, uh, I need to finish. I woke up screaming, horrified screaming. Jacqueline was next to me in bed, shrieking and scrambling away from me, tears leaking from her eyes. There was something wrong with her skin. I rubbed my eyes and blinked. That's when I noticed it was on my hands as well. Holes. Small holes about the size of the nail on my pinky finger covered Jacqueline's entire body, her face. They were on my hands, my arms, my whole body. I screamed too. It took around ten minutes to gather myself and go to the bathroom to get a better look to figure out what was happening. Jacqueline whimpered in the fetal position. I wanted to comfort her, but couldn't find the words. First, I had to figure things out. I'd look in the bathroom. I'd recognize that this was some uncommon disease, and we'd go to the hospital and fix it. That was my plan. The holes were everywhere, but clustered in dense, honeycomb-like patches. Each was about half an inch deep with red, irritated skin at the bottom. The edges of the holes, the parts that weren't soft and sunken, were rough and almost brittle. I gagged as I ran my fingers over the pockmarked body. The feelings of disgust and fear I felt. I didn't know what disease this could be, but it was like nothing I'd ever heard of. Running my hands over my pockmarked body, feeling the squishy pits and their tough rims all over my own skin. My face, a porous mass of flesh, no longer looked human in the mirror. I felt a great helplessness overwhelm me, a whisper in my mind telling me that nothing but prayer could possibly save me now. Prayer, like the praying body. And then I realized, the dust, the gray dust in that box, it was something foul, some kind of spore or virus, and it had infected me, and it had infected Jacqueline too. 
that's when I understood that I was not escaping this. I would not live, neither would Jacqueline. A sickness from the unknown had crawled into our bodies. I understood my dreams and the poem. I understood that we were the first, that we were meant to spread our affliction to all of humanity. I couldn't let that happen. Jacqueline moaned from the other room. We, uh, we have to go to the hospital. I stepped out of the bathroom. At the sight of me, her mouth opened in a horrified gasp. Another hole in a honeycombed face. We have to go to the hospital, she repeated. No, I said. What? I heard the confusion and fear in her voice, and above all, a thick suffocating disgust. Jacqueline didn't like holes. She didn't even like a bubble bath I once prepared because the bubbles reminded her of holes. She was in hell. Jackie, I said, something is really, really wrong, and we're not going to get better. What are you saying? How do you know? Her questions rose in a note of panic. I just... This came from the powder box, and it infected us. You weren't even exposed to the original spores, but you were exposed to me, which means it's contagious, airborne, and it sets in fast. We can't go outside. I was strangely calm now that I accepted it. The only problem was how to die without letting others get infected, and how to deal with Jacqueline. She became hysterical, had a panic attack, tried to leave. I wouldn't let her. I felt as if the world was depending on me. If the corruption inside our bodies left this house, it would ravage our species. I knew that from the dreams. Eventually, she grew violent. She tried to shove me away and rush through the front door. I had to stop her. At first, I only wanted to knock her out so we could spend a few more hours together. But when my hands, distorted with the holes, closed around her porous throat, I realized I didn't want her to suffer. I would do this myself, and so I squeezed and wept, and now I'm typing this out. My insides are churning with new organs, the holes in my skin growing deeper, my head spinning. The air is heavy with a musty, death-like odor. I am not long for this world. Jackie's body is sitting beside me now, praying to that thing out there that made this sickness. A fleshy tube of fungal growth has sprouted from the back of her neck. Gray powder puffs out of it. I can sense the parasite compelling me to leave the house and to kneel, to bow my head, and let the tube emerge. I will not let it. I will not let this evil thing use my own body to pollinate the world with death. I hope it doesn't survive. I love you, Jackie. And to everyone else, good luck. There is no one to blame for my son's death except myself. But then again, he's not exactly dead. As the plane was going through the storm, I knew that something wasn't right. Maybe if I had known then that the pilot had been up three days on his own special blend of cocaine and fentanyl, I would have insisted that we wait for a more qualified flyer. Yet, as my eight-year-old son and I boarded the small prop plane, everything had seemed fine, 
It looked to be in stellar condition from the outside look of it, and the pilot had seemed competent enough. Seemed. Hell, maybe he was competent, just not when he hadn't slept in three days and had enough cocaine in his system for a small country. You sure we shouldn't wait out the storm? I asked him. I'm no expert, but it looks worse than what they said. He glanced over towards the ominous dark reds and blues that stood facing us from the horizon. That little thing? He had answered back with a grin. Ain't nothing. Just stick with me. I'll have the two of you there before you know what hit you. He had ruffled the hair on the top of my son Tommy's head quickly, and then he opened the small door on the passenger side of the plane. The turbulence had come in small spurts, and my son even seemed to enjoy it, at first. The beautiful view of the ocean was breathtaking, and helped dull the fear of the strange clouds above us. Look, Dad, are those sharks? I followed Tommy's eyes towards a group of shadows in the water that stood out at our two o'clock. Maybe so, I replied back from next to him. A few minutes passed, and as the two of us sat together watching the swirling colors of the storm and the shadows below us, I couldn't help but smile. Though we were just at the start of our trip together, it was turning out to be just what I'd hoped, bonding with my son, time alone. A trip to bring the two of Tug Tommy was suddenly thrown violently against the dark green interior of the plane. My heart began to race desperately as I checked him for injuries, the plane beginning to drop up and down as if the physics that had kept an old aluminum box in the sky were being threatened by some greater force than science. Tommy, damn, are you all right? A small cut could be seen just below his left ear and I grabbed a bandage from the emergency kit I had seen earlier below our seat. I'm okay, Dad. And then we dropped. Fast. As we descended like a bullet, the pilot's once cocksure and careless attitude turned to terror, and he began to lose control of not only the plane, but himself as well. Checking from instrument to instrument rapidly, there seemed to be no rhyme or reason for what he was doing. Just before we crashed into the bright blue of the Pacific, I tried to shield my son the best I could. I wish I would have tried something different. And then we hit. Boy, did we ever hit. You ever see Castaway? That's how it happens. One second everything is fine, and then the next you're trying desperately to survive. When I came to, the cold water was already up to my neck, and my son couldn't be seen. Without a second thought, I stuck my head underneath the surface, unclipped him from where he was sitting, grabbed the only life jacket I could find, and pulled him from the wreckage. When we came up, I got us a few yards away from the plane, and tried my best to check on my son. I knew that water had gone into his lungs, and all I could think of was to hold his head above the water and used my free hand to try and get him to cough up the fluid. Nothing seemed to work, but as fate would have it, we wouldn't be floating long. An incredibly strong current pushed the two of us quickly under the yellowing clouds of the storm, and within a short time, I was carrying my son across a blanket of fresh white sand. I quickly performed CPR, and to my surprise and thrill, Tommy coughed up the water that had been drowning him, and stared up at me. His blue eyes looked up innocently, and I began to cry. What happened, Dad? 
I pulled him into my arms and squeezed tighter than I ever had before. I squeezed so hard that he even coughed up what was left of the water in his lungs. That was four days ago, and there have been no signs of rescue since. Or at least that's what I've told my son. You see, there's a bigger problem than rescue. That night as we sat together around the fire I'd made, my son told me he just didn't quite feel right. I checked his forehead, which seemed colder than usual. I checked his eyes, which seemed darker than usual. And I checked his pulse. His pulse. You see, that's the thing. Tommy doesn't seem to have a pulse at all. He's talking like normal, and he is interacting much differently, but he doesn't seem to have a heartbeat. In fact, I'm quite sure of it at this point. There's more, too. His body is beginning to change. I haven't told him, but his skin is starting to turn a dark shade of blue. A corpse blue. I'm beginning to think that he really is dead. Well, at least some kind of dead. Two weeks ago, I got the call that my brother had committed suicide. It came as a complete shock to me. I know it's a cliché, but Jerry really didn't seem like the suicidal kind, if there is such a thing. Sure, he had problems just like we all do. He was in a bad car wreck in college, and he battled depression for months after he realized that surgery and rehab was only going to give him most of his mobility back, not all. But that was seven years ago. He hardly limped anymore had a good job, and had just started dating a great girl a few months earlier. He hadn't said anything concrete, but I could tell from talking to him that they were in love, that he thought Lacey was the one. She was the one who called me first, and she sounded crushed. I drove out that night, and amid funeral arrangements and spending time with my parents and Lacey, I was so busy taking care of things that I didn't have time to stop and really let it sink in. My brother, one of my best friends since I was born, was really gone. It wasn't until I was sitting in his empty house surrounded by belongings that I had to pack up or throw away that I broke down and began to cry. I was crying so hard, so focused on my newfound grief, that I didn't hear the doorbell at first. When I did, I debated not answering it, as I rarely answered my own door. Still, Jerry had always been more friendly and outgoing, and it somehow felt wrong to not honor that and be hospitable while I was still in his last home. Wiping my face, I went to the door and opened it on an older couple. Hi there. I hope we're not interrupting. I looked at them confusedly for a moment. Um, I... Jerry's not here. The woman frowned. Oh, we know, honey. We heard what happened to him. The man leaned forward, as though to whisper, though when he spoke, his voice was loud and harsh in my ears. Terrible thing. Good guy. Terrible thing. The woman's face deepened as she glanced at the man and then thrust forward a covered dish. We live next door, but we didn't know him well enough to come over during the funeral and whatnot, and we've been out of town recently as well, but we did want to do something, and we saw that someone was over here, um, cleaning up, so I thought we'd bring over this casserole. She paused before adding, 
It's a bean casserole. My recipe. I took the offered dish numbly. This wasn't the first food offering I'd had to take in the last few days, and I admit to being relieved that this was the purpose of their visit. It meant they'd go away, satisfied they'd help in some nebulous way by giving food no one asked for or wanted. Except, they didn't go away. At least, not yet. Everything going okay? Got anyone helping you? The woman's eyes were roving past me into the shadows of Jerry's foyer. I quickly found my faint gratitude souring into annoyance. So was that it, then? Nosy neighbors wanting a peek at the horror show? I shrugged. It's fine. I've got it handled. My brother was a neat guy, so it's mainly just a matter of figuring out what to keep and what to throw away. I was about to launch into the whole wrap-up speech about how I better get back to it, when the man interrupted. Have you run across anything strange so far? I stared at him blankly. Um, no? What do you mean? He looked away. Oh, I don't know. They say you don't really know someone until you go through their stuff, right? Gritting my teeth, I started pushing the door shut. Look, I need to go. Thanks for the casserole, and... The man blocked the door with his foot. We mean no offense, friend. Want us to come in and keep you company for a bit? I pushed against the door harder and felt the wood flex slightly, but it didn't budge. No, I wouldn't like that. Please move your foot and go on. The woman gave me a thin smile as she nudged the man in the side. Sorry to keep you. We'll let you get back to it. The man reluctantly moved his foot back, and I immediately shoved the door shut with a solid thump. Ah, screw me. What was their deal? Were they just that pushy? I jumped as my phone rang. It was the number of the detective that had worked Jerry's case. Miss Sanchez, this is Jim Truitt. How are you doing today? Swallowing, I backed away from the door and returned to the living room where I'd been packing. I'm fine. Packing stuff up. Anything I can help you with? Well, I'm closing out your brother's file, and we have a few personal effects that we need to either release to you or destroy. I felt my legs growing weak, so I sat down between a table and a half-full packing box. Um, you mean like his clothing and stuff? I could hear how uncomfortable Truett was over the phone. No, not his clothes. They were... Well, they were considered a biohazard due to their condition, so those are typically burned once we're done with them. But he had a wallet with various cards, a couple of photos, and $57 in cash. He also had his cell phone and the keys I already gave you, and... Well, the note he left. He paused and then rushed forward quickly. Not that you have to take the note, or any of it. People feel different ways about that kind of thing, and we're happy to do whatever you and your family want. The air felt heavy around me, making it hard to move or think. I knew what the note said. I had seen it the day after I'd arrived in town, and despite being in a plastic evidence bag, I'd been able to tell Detective Truett that it looked like Jerry's handwriting, even if the words made no sense. I've had enough. Goodbye. Love you all, Jerry. I felt fresh tears springing up in the corner of my eyes, and I fought them back. I, well, the, the wallet and stuff, yeah, but the note. I, I don't want the note. None of us want that. Okay, fair enough. 
I'll have the rest up front for you to pick up whenever you like. Just tell them that. Are you sure he did it? Huh? The man sounded younger when he was caught off guard, and it took him a second to process what I was asking and respond. Did what? Commit suicide? Yeah, it just didn't seem like something he'd do. His voice was softer and tinged with sadness now. Look, I know why you feel that way. I, well, I've never told anyone outside of my family about this, but when my grandmother died a few years back, it was suicide too. She was 87 and had bone cancer, so I could see her reasoning even if I didn't agree with it. But there was still a part of me, and my dad too, that had trouble accepting that she'd done that to herself on purpose. I guess my point is that you never really know what other people have going on inside, and what they're capable of. And it's not your responsibility to save them from themselves. He cleared his throat. Not trying to preach at you. Just want you to know that what you're feeling is natural and will pass with time. I sighed and wiped at my face again. I appreciate it. Thanks for your help. I hung up, and it was as I was leaning forward to set my phone on the floor that I caught a glimpse of white under the table next to me. My first thought was that it was warranty paperwork or something similar that the maker of the furniture had stapled to the underside of the table, and that Jerry had never noticed and removed. But as I looked closer, I saw it was a small, white envelope that had been taped there. My mouth was dry as I reached for it and gave it a tug. It was well secured and it took three yanks to free the envelope without tearing it. Once I was holding it, I studied it for a moment. There was no writing on the envelope, and it looked fairly new. New enough that most likely Jerry had put it there during the nearly three years he had lived in the house and had his furniture. Licking my lips, I gently opened the envelope. Inside was an instant camera photo and a short note. I felt my stomach lurch as I recognized Jerry's handwriting immediately. If someone finds this note, please know that if I have died or gone missing, it was not of my own free will. They keep finding ways in. I don't know why they keep coming, but I know they do things to me while I'm asleep. The door keeps popping up. I took a picture of it. They're growing angry, and I don't know what to do. Please help me if you can. Or if it's too late, please get away. Get far away. I read the note five times before turning to the photo. It was a picture of what looked like one of the walls in the dining room, and in the middle of it was a tall door of dark wood and black metal. I'd have to check, but I didn't remember any door like that in the entire house. First, though, I needed to call the detective back, tell him what I'd found. Pushing redial, I clenched my phone hard enough to make it creak when his voicemail picked up. I left him a vague but urgent message, but after I hung up, I was unsure what to do. I could call 911, or go to the police station, but odds are they would just give me back over to Truett, anyway, since he'd worked Jerry's death. And I was angry and scared, but there was no reason to think that waiting a few minutes or hours would make some huge difference to anything now. So I went over and lay down on the sofa, planning to just rest and organize my thoughts for a little while, before trying to call the detective again. 
Before I knew it, I was asleep, and when I woke up, night had fallen, and the house was dark, except for dim patches of light streaming in from the street lamps outside. I began to sit up when I heard a noise coming from the kitchen. It was a stealthy, furtive noise, and my first thought was a mouse or rat. Shuddering at the thought, I got up and began easing my way through the house. I knew the layout of the furniture well enough to avoid the chairs and tables, but the scattered boxes were a different matter. I stumbled on three between the sofa and the dining room. It was as I looked back up from bumping into the third that I thought I saw a quick movement in the shadows, across the dining room, and heading into the hall. I froze for a moment, and then fumbled for my phone to turn on the light. I shined the light across the far end of the dining room and the hall beyond, but I didn't see anything. I thought, and also checked the walls of the room, no door like in the picture either. Hearing blood pounding in my ears, I found the switch and flipped on the light. The light made everything feel less menacing, but I still felt dull dread as I opened the door to the kitchen and shone my light around on the floor. I hated mice, and if it was a roach big enough to make that racket, I didn't want to. It wasn't a mouse, or a rat, or a roach, it was a folded piece of paper. Finding the kitchen lights, I flipped them on before bending down to pick it up. I found myself hoping it would be just an old receipt, an invoice from the Tombstone Company, or some other scrap of what remained of closing out Jerry's business. But it wasn't any of those things. It was a note, and what looked like my handwriting, signed with my name. I've had enough of everything. Goodbye. Love you all. Connie. Sarah sat across from me, wearing a tinfoil hat. She'd put effort into it. Tinfoil sculpted neatly around her entire head, with a nice little bulb on the top. Can you tell me why you wear that, Sarah? I asked. Her eyes darted back and forth, as if the government, or whatever entity she was afraid of, might hear her. They'll listen to my thoughts, she finally whispered. And then... I understand, but... I can assure you, it's perfectly safe to remove the tinfoil, Sarah. Really? Poor girl. Her lip was trembling, and her eyes were wide with fear. What made her so afraid? Of the government, or aliens, or whatever else she thinks is listening in on her thoughts? We'd already investigated her parents. There was no evidence of any sort of abuse. So why was this little eight-year-old girl so scared? I know you think, when you take off that hat, that something will listen in on your thoughts, and then that'd be a disaster, right? Because maybe the government, or aliens, or whatever else is listening, will use that to their advantage. They'll stalk you, or try to control your mind. But that won't happen, Sarah. But they'll kill me. When they hear my thoughts, they'll come in the middle of the night and... Shh. None of that is going to happen, Sarah. You're okay. No, I'm not, she said, tears brimming in her eyes. I promise you are. There's nothing to be afraid of, okay? Nothing. I leaned forward and gave her a smile. Can you try to take off the hat? No, I don't want to. Please, try, for me. I promise. Nothing bad will happen. 
She looked around, her face growing pale. You promise? Promise. I'll even do the pinky thing. She finally broke into a smile. Our pinkies locked. Then she slowly reached up for the tinfoil. She shut her eyes tight. She yanked it off. I jumped back. My heart pounded in my chest. Dr. Taylor, are you okay? A ringing filled my ears. It gave way to whispers, talking all at once, overlapping and hissing. Some fell away, others intensified, until the words became clear. Take that knife from the cabinet. Stab her in the eye with it. Now. The voice wasn't hers. It was low, deep, rasping. The kind of voice that scrapes at your mind, shredding your sanity. Sarah, I asked, but my voice sounded so small. And then I felt my body move. I clenched my muscles, tried to stop, but nothing happened. My feet shuffled forward, towards the cabinet, towards the knife. Her eyes widened. She reached down and grabbed the tinfoil hat, pushed it back over her hair. Immediately the voices extinguished. A dull ringing throbbed in my ears. I'm so sorry, she said, bursting into tears. I didn't want you to hear it, Dr. Taylor. That's why I didn't take it off. That's why... It's okay, Sarah, I said. You're going to be okay, I promise. But I wasn't so sure that was a promise I could keep. Because now I knew. She doesn't wear the hat to keep something out. She wears it to keep that voice in.